Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, you're listening to the Never Strays Far podcast with me, Ned Bolting. And me, David Miller. This podcast is brought to you by your company, David, which is called... Chapter 3. Go and check it out at chapter3.com, that's C-H-P-T-3, and you'll learn all about it. I founded it in 2015. Excellent. And by The Roadbook, which is the definitive cycling almanac, available for the duration of uh, Paris-Nice, which we'll be podcasting from every day, with a discount code that allows you free shipping on all UK orders. Just go to the website and enter NSF2020 when you check out. kilometers from Chevreuse to Chalet sur Luang, and it was horrible again, David, wasn't it? It was windy and all sorts. Yeah, but once again, a bit, a bit like yesterday, it sort of tricked us because you did call it. You looked at the map and you said, "With 33 k's to go, they're going to turn and it's going to be crosswinds and probably echelons." And but it didn't even look like the peloton believed that. They were just kind of they were holding positions, but nobody was riding aggressively. They went through a technical little village, came out at 33 kilometers to go, and then gradually. <laughs> The shit just hit the fan, but it was really like somebody was just turning the fan up slowly. Yeah, and it was like just got, it started from the back, just people getting fired out, That's and then incidents started happening. That's what it was. It was a lobster being cooked from scratch in cold water until eventually it's screaming in pain. And That's what happened Perfect. to Paris Nice today. In in the most apocalyptic kind of so in the distance over the horizon there were black rain clouds that occasionally were dumping on the and all the while as we passed through this part of France there were ploughed fields weren't there and these straight and that's partly what did it isn't it narrow straight farm roads tarmac albeit but um it was the it was the road and yeah the and also it's because across. it was those country roads it's got those slight drop offs at the edge and you you literally go into a muddy field and that's what happened and that's what that's what that's what cost that's what cost couple riders quintana well we don't know about quintana's accidents but possibly philippe there's a lot of dirt at the side of the road when you're in the gutter as we call it and that's why you're supposed to try and avoid it and he had a, a rear wheel puncture at the worst possible moment 26 k's to go when the the lobster hadn't completely been cooked yet <laughs> but because there were about 50 riders still at the front it was still clacking its it was still alive it was sort of clacking its feelers <laughs> and occasionally just screaming in pain but completely not and so he was dropping off and you saw that happen and i think that started to instigate things because he is a gc favorite and whereas i think everybody been riding defensively just trying to make sure they weren't caught out things started to wind up a bit at the front and then the second victim was naira quintana yep and we didn't see the crash but we saw the aftermath yeah and again that looked like again somebody was going off the road into the mud and causing a random crash in a straight road his brother handed him his bike. He got going. But again, uh, that's he ended up with Philippe, and they were, before they knew it, one minute behind. One of four sets of brothers in Paris-Nice. Four sets of brothers. But Daya Quintana is younger than Nairo, but irritatingly for a younger brother, he's a bit bigger than Nairo, isn't he? Mm. Which isn't particularly hard. So Quintana was really up against it. He got together with uh, that Philippe group, didn't they? And eventually de Koenig kind of got themselves... Got their shit together, really, didn't they? And got themselves organised. But they were a bit underkerning today, weren't they? They were, but I think uh, you can see in the moment, it was a perfect example of 
what happens in crosswinds, where you can be attentive all day, but if you have a lapse of concentration or a distraction that lasts 10, 15 seconds, it's all over. And I think in that slight confusion when Philippe had that puncture in that front group where he had the majority of his team around him, that hesitation trying to decide what to do meant they all drifted back slightly and then it started to wind up and they all started to get caught out. And then you don't know, do we wait for him? Are we waiting for him? Do yeah. we carry on? Who's going back? Who's yeah. going to stay up here? And that, that can take up to a, a couple of minutes to figure out. And in that process, I think because they were on the back foot, they were missed that whole front group. And their, and their thinking on the road must have been slightly affected by the fact that in Sam Bennett, they had a f- big favourite for today, but he never seemed to be quite in the right place today, did he? Yeah, and that is probably indicative of not being a, a, in winning form because he was in a position where he would have been given carte blanche. Look, the rest of the team, you, you wouldn't hesitate if you're the sprinter. You know you don't have to wait. You've just got to look after yourself, stay up there, stay in the good positions and make sure that, yeah, you've lost your lead out, you've lost your team, but sometimes that's just as beneficial in crosswinds because it means you just ride following everybody else, telling them you're not contributing and you use everybody else's lead out and hard work. But he couldn't be there. He was he couldn't get in the stadium in the front. He ended up being fired out like many other riders. So so that front group um, was uh, well for a while. It was animated by um, Groupama FTJ in particular because Pino was there, and so too was Juan Bade for a lot of today. And they knew that Alaphilippe was in trouble, and they knew that Quintana was in trouble. So they were motivated. I mean, in particular, Groupama FTJ. But then that group then got sliced in half again, didn't it? Because um, Bora Hanskra, who were just there in ridiculous numbers. I mean, the eight-man teams here, they had about 13 men in the front mm. group, didn't they? They didn't put a foot wrong today, Bora Hanskra. They were the team, well, obviously. They did, they did, but we'll come to that. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Right. <laughs> just, yeah right. Like they didn't win yeah. a race, but apart from that, but yeah. No, because yeah. when we, I mentioned at the beginning, that little village they went through before they hit the, the danger zone, they had the whole team in the front. But obviously, that's their rights. They got the leader's jersey. Yep. But they were holding that right. And they were riding very cleverly. They weren't overstretching it. They let the other teams make the do the damage. They were riding vigilantly, if not aggressively. And they just saved the aggressivity right until the end of the race, right until they could see that they could knock the kind of put the death punch in. But they let the other teams kind of panic a bit or, or overwork. One of the, the the heroes of the day, really, was Mads Pedersen. Yeah. Because uh, Trek Segafredo were the first team to to take advantage of the situation, of, of seeing there was an opportunity as riders were getting dropped out, especially big GC riders. And so they started riding almost immediately. And then that's when it kind of... But that whole time, Bora Hansgrohe just cautiously, just, just attentively sat near the front and kept out of trouble. Really being marshaled by Sagan in a kind of road yeah. captain, in a real road captain-y way today because he's not a GC rider and he's not the dedicated sprinter. He's just Peter Sagan mm-hmm. and he was really kind of calling the shots today. For better or worse, we'll, we'll kind of come to that. But you're right. You're right to mention Mads Pedersen. <laughs> okay, David. It's the first time we've seen him race in 2020. I mean, he went down under... And he just rode, I think, um, used it as a bit of conditioning yeah. work. Um, and he's not done much so far, but that was racing today from, from the day. That's going to be a huge boost of confidence for him. Uh, sometimes you need a day like that, even if there's no result uh, at the end of it, because he, it will have boosted his confidence no end. You yep. know, that's been a very hard day's racing, and he was one of the key protagonists at the front, piling the pressure on, causing all the damage. And yeah, I think that's going to, because it, it's got a huge burden on his shoulders, being the world champion. He's so young and. You know, a lot is expected of him, and I don't think even he knows if he can deliver on it. So a day like this will will help him with the classic season season on the horizon. Indeed, um, 
there are a lot, number of riders to tip a hat to today. And before we move on to what happened in the final kilometre, which I think was really interesting, um, I, I think it's worthy of note quite how well Sergio Iguita fared Ooh. again today. Amazing. repeatedly i mean he was, he was aggressive the whole way because that second intermediate sprint after the breakaway had been caught there were bonus seconds available there and he picked up some two didn't he two seconds two, two seconds yeah. um yeah the way he's right when you saw there was an image in those final final few kilometers and he he is a pure climber he's a, a little colombian dude who's like you would think wouldn't stand a chance in the flat yep and yet there was this kind of a head a shot from the front looking back at the group and he was dwarfed by all the riders around him. Yep. But the way he was riding, he was just one of them. And he was pedal for pedal. He was always in the right position, fighting. Uh, it's, it's rare to see any rider do that so young, let alone one who's half the weight of the, the riders he's racing against. Yep. So uh, it's, it's going to be really interesting because he's now passed the, arguably the, the two biggest test days of Paris-Nice now. He's, he's now entering into the terrain where he'll be more comfortable. It's a time trial, challenging. But... Uh, but he's way far ahead of a lot of the other GC riders. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've, we're recording this so soon, we haven't got an official GC, so you just have to look that up for yourselves. Mm. Do your own research, basically. Um, the other thing that's of note about Sergio Iguita is he, he, Matt, Matt Rendell has moved on from Naira. Oh. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. He's. I mean, honestly, if you speak to Matt, he's all about Sergio now. Is he? Yeah. I mean, he's not entirely dumped Nairo. No, because I think that you know no, Matt Rendell and Naira go too deep and too long, really, together. Yeah, but, that's just a, that's that's love. He is he's he's um, very excited about Sergio Iguita, <sighs> and so he should be actually because uh, that was an impressive ride today. Um, so we come to the final kilometer, David. Yeah, and Bora Hansgrohe found them, uh, whereas before being outnumbered. Well, sorry, they were kind of they had the numbers. They were outnumbering every, everybody else. It actually became detrimental in the final. Became a problem. Because everybody was looking at them. And as you were saying before, Peter Sagan was riding that captain role and he was doing it exceptionally, but to the degree where he was dictating everything so much that uh, everybody was only watching them. Yeah. And Schachmann started to lead out a bit too far out and uh, Sagan found himself too near the front. And let's not forget, I think one of the issues was that Peter Sagan isn't, the Peter Sagan that we're perhaps familiar with. Oh, you think? Yeah. And so... That's a bold, that's a bold <laughs> assertion, David. Oh, not as bold as yours, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> but uh, but in, a, in a normal no, situation, you'd think in that group of, what, eight, ten riders... Perfect uh, guy. Perfect guy. And he could have waited until 500, 500 metres to go. He'd still been able to deliver an incredible lead out. And you could see now looking back, if we think about it, he knows he's not that strong. So he was having to play these very tactical games. He was calling other riders bluff. He was dropping off the wheel. He was letting other teams fill in oh, because right. he didn't want to get to the front too, too soon. So it's actually a facet of his slight self-doubt and his, his potential yeah, I think being he, a bit, little bit under par. He had to really calculate and do as little as he could. Oh. So he wasn't just going to count on his pure physical prowess to overpower everybody and just take it to the line. He realized that I'm going to have to be really foxy here and try and delay when I hit the front till as late as possible, which he did, but it was still too too early. And when he did go, you could see not one person was gapped when he started his lead out. Yep. In fact, people were coming up immediately. Well, in fact, I think if you look back, when, when Sagan begins his lead out, Ackerman was thinking, okay, it's go time and, and gearing up to, to, to go with this burst of acceleration from Sagan that didn't come. And Ackerman has to check and freewheel for a beat or two. Yeah, and that's... So and, every, and it kind of concertinas up behind yeah. him then. And that perhaps also is... So you can imagine some 
the great sprinter like Cav in that situation would have already dropped off a found, bike lane another so, wheel or just or dropped just, off or just, dropped, Sag- off, just yeah. dropped off so he could get a run up on Pete on Sagan yep. but Ackerman as he said was glued to his wheel yep. expecting perhaps he said that explosive where you're terrified when Sagan goes if you can hold the wheel but actually what happened was immediately he was coming up on him and then that, that put him on the back foot so then actually it was Nitsolo who was getting the perfect lead out yep. because he was then two behind them, well, two behind Sagan and was then using the other lead outs, the other riders and then he just came rolling over the top. Kept a very cool head, Giacomo Nizzolo and um, clearly clearly he's on good form with that, that second place in Kern, Brussels Kern and, uh, you know, he's, he's a versatile, what I like about him is he's not, a, he's not the prolific winner that uh, Caleb Ewan is or a Fabio Jakobsen or a Sam Bennett but he gets, his, he gets a sufficient tally. He's obviously a bit reinvented, I think, at NTT the way he started uh, this year and and he is a man who likes to go to the the one day races and take them on as well unlike some of the other sprinters um and i think he's having probably the best year of his life so far and that well that's a world tour win at paris nice something he's not done before yeah he's just plugging away and it's uh, the consistency is is just goes to show what a, a good professional you are he also uh provided one of the most i thought heart-wrenchingly moving only from a sport, sporting perspective moments I've ever witnessed actually with my own eyes and that was in the Giro in 2016 where he was he was subjected to kind of increasing levels of ridicule from the Italian public throughout that Giro because oh, I remember because this. of his his propensity to win the points competition year in year out I think he's won it two or three times without winning a stage of the Giro and we come to the pouring rain and the final stage 21 in Turin and he wins the final sprints and finally gets that monkey off his. Uh, what do you say? What's the back. phrase? Monkey Thank you, monkey back. off his back, and um, and he gets DQ'd mm. for leaving his line and impeding the rider behind him, who turned out to be Nicky Assant. And so he's not on the top step of the podium. Um, Nicky Assant is instead who who doesn't hold back from celebrating. By the way, <laughs> punching the air and giving it all that. <laughs> um, but um, a bit like that Italian under twenty three Samuele Battistella who took advantage of Neil Zakoff's disqualification. Uh, he he over-celebrated yeah. as well. But anyway, um, but that wasn't the end of the trauma for poor old Giacomo Nizzolo because guess what? He'd won the points jersey again. So the pro- podium protocol meant that he had to go back on oh, to the podium no. with that flipping jersey he didn't really want and without that stage win. Um, so I've always had a bit of a... And he's a really nice guy and I've had a soft spot for Giacomo Nizzolo ever since, actually. And so, um, and so that was good. I was, I, was, I was glad to see. Doesn't alter the fact that Ackerman, I think, ordinarily is, you know, like tomorrow, perhaps, mm. perhaps might be an ordinary day. Um, Ackerman is still, I think, a force to be reckoned with. And, um, but he might face, if it is a more straightforward day, he might face competition from uh, Caleb Ewan and the rest of them, Sam Bennett, who were nowhere again today. Just blown away by the wind. Yeah, it's uh, savage racing here and it's living up to its... Uh it's reputation, that's for sure. And for many of the riders that have avoided it for many years, preferring Trenio Adriatico for that very reason, they're just going to be hating life. It's a, it's a savage race. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. All right, let's, uh, unless there's anything else that you want to chuck into the mix here, David? No, I think we're good. Uh, I, um, have a little beat and I'll introduce something. Oh, no, you look, you're looking at me in a funny way. Can we just discuss just one of the little things that happened when I came into the commentary box yeah. today? Mm. Because you do it, you're, you're having... I'm a little existential crisis at the moment. Yeah, well, I turned fifty last year. Yeah, well, that's one of them. But um, I, uh, you, first thing I, uh, you wanted to tell me, or you started talking about who's the last world champion to have not won a race. Yep. And then we got onto the subject that you were pretty sure Mads Pedersen wasn't going to win a race this year. To yep. add to your, yep. 
what is becoming an ever-growing list, a blacklist, the Ned Bolting blacklist that is uh, well. that is ever-growing. And I, 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 so Mads Pedersen is obviously uh, <laughs> going to win a race. He's, isn't on, he? he's on that now. He's, he's on the list. Yep. Peter Sagan, yep. you've made the audacious. Well, you said to me. Uh, it, it seems to me that every day this prediction is going to get a mention, David. So we might as well mention it properly again today. Because you said, you said, t- 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 your Sagan prediction, was it he's not going to win a race in 2020? Or was it he's never going to win another bike race? And I actually couldn't remember what I'd written. So I had to go and check. Now, my prediction is that he's not going to win a bike race in 2020. But if actually thinking about it, if he doesn't win a bike race in 2020, he's not going to win one in 2021, is he? So, you're, you're so, I, so I'll go with, I'll upgrade, I'll upgrade the prediction now okay. to... He's never going to win another white race. Mats Pedersen, interesting. Um, well, he he showed that he's he showed that he's coming into form. What right <laughs> was great about it though was I don't think Mats Pedersen has ever had as much TV time as today. <laughs> he was all over like, it. from the start, from even when a quiet moment camera was, I couldn't stop. Even I actually laughed. Nothing. I was laughing in the first bit because <laughs> I said he's such a great rider. Just, but it was, um, and then he was just dominating on the front of the stage along with uh, Peter Sagan. Who was so, the last world champion who didn't win a stage? Uh, well, uh, we're, we're, we think, I'm going to put it as that's you and me both, so yeah. I, don't, I don't get labelled with it. Rudy Darnan's 1990. Yeah, it's a long time ago, isn't it? It's a long time ago, which goes to shadow. They're normally pretty good riders, <laughs> world champions. <laughs> but we were going back through the, through the list going, well, hang on, did he... You know, Cadell Evans, did he actually? And yeah, yeah he did. Yeah. And then um, Rui Costa. Who was it who we thought? Rui Costa. Igor, Igor Astaloa. Yeah. Who was it we thought? Oh, he won't have won one. Oscar Freire. No, it was... Um, as well. No, no, no. It was um, uh, um, Balan. Alessandro uh, Balan. Balan. We went, yeah. he can't have won one, but he did actually. Sure enough. And, um, but yeah, as you say, they're, they're quite good at racing their bikes. They're quite good. They, they win races. As things stand, though, after two stages of Paranis, Mads Pedersen is yet to win. As the yeah. world champion. Put in the show notes um, the link to your journal with this list. No, I'll, 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 I, won't, I won't do that. Okay, I'll just put it in then. Okay, all right. Okay. Let's take a little break. Now, David, um, I want to play you an interview that I recorded uh, a couple of days ago. And yep. um, because I've been reading a lot of what this uh, woman has written online recently, and she's been very, very interesting, very open, and will continue to be in a series of... Um, publications on I think it's oh, I hope I've got this right Cycling Tips I think that's the name of the website yeah. that she's written for uh, Molly Weaver has been writing about life who's now retired from road racing at least and has a different career ahead of her in endurance racing gravel racing and stuff um, I don't know anything about that world but you know okay. as I've just but um, uh, she's been writing about life within the women's peloton and revealing some sort of home truths that I'm quite familiar with, having been a little, having had a little exposure to women's racing, but might come as a bit of a surprise to the readers or indeed the listeners to this podcast um, because we go into a bit of detail here, me and Molly, about um, how much, or let's rephrase that, how little some of the women racers are paid. <laughs> All right, well, I'm sat outside uh, Hermano's Colombian Coffee Roasters in, uh, in Victoria in kind of weird sunshine that's suddenly come from nowhere, but there's a risk of a really quite icy downpour any second. So if this interview gets interrupted, that's the reason why. And Molly Weaver's come to join me, which is, which is great. Um, Molly, first of all, um, I just wanted to talk to you about the, the writing that you've been doing for the Cycling Tips website. Um, you've been very public about kind of agonising about whether or not to write this kind of 
yeah, almost, um, how would I describe it? It's almost, it's almost like confessions from within the peloton in the sense of this was the life of a, this is the life of a, of a, of a woman in the profession peloton. And your first, your first of these articles has been released and it's about money. Um, can you just give us a brief outline about what, what it is that you write about and, and why you chose to write about that? Um, why is an interesting one. I think I, I, the reason I agonised over it for a while was that I wanted there to be a purpose to writing. I didn't want to just write stuff that was just a bit inherently negative and, and, and if there was no purpose and no reason to do it. Um, it was almost by accident it became a big thing. I was just going to blog about it and people had always asked. Um, and then people were interested, so it became a bigger deal. And, and this one, I think... From the inside, none of us are shocked by how little money there is as riders, and I think the staff of teams, obviously. But everybody I talked about it in person was really surprised, and I thought, that shouldn't be the case. Why are people who are fans of the sport and who know me and who know my teams and who know like a lot of riders and follow the sport closely, why are they surprised when you tell them how much you earned in when it's a one-on-one conversation? And I think the answer is because no one ever says. And if you don't, if no one says it, then people believe what they want to believe, what's nicer and you know is a better thing to think. Um, and people know only what you tell them. So I just decided, actually, I have nothing to lose. I'm not planning on going back into that side of professional cycling, and it can't have any negative repercussion on me, really, other than you know maybe on a personal basis. But that's my risk to take. Um, and I thought, you know what, if this helps either a rider who feels that they're in a position of weakness and feels you know, either ashamed of how little they earn or, is it, or doesn't know what to do with that, I think it can help a rider individually. Or I think unless we talk about things, people just get away with stuff and stuff continues and it's like a self-perpetuating situation. If there's silence forever, it can just continue even when there is money. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's whatever, whichever way you frame it. There's no harm in throwing light where there's darkness, and, and that's really what you've done here. Um, so, you know, to put the sort of bare bones of it without wanting to spike your article, and I recommend that people should go and read your article because, you, by the way, you write very well. You've got a really um, clear kind of um, and, and um, uh, articulate turn of phrase. But um, the bare bones of it are: in your first year, you earned zero. In your second year, you earned zero pounds. So then you had a couple of years earning three grand. And then one year at the end where you earned about nine grand. And, and roughly with a few deductions and bits and pieces, that was the, that was the scheme of it. Um, that's in a year. Obviously, you had your kit and your stuff, you know, but often, often you'd have to pay to attend races. Um, and like you say, Molly, I wasn't surprised because I've been close enough to the women's peloton for that to be fairly clear to me. Um, and that even riders at the very, very, very top level of the sports are not on the kind of money that y- you might imagine. But the, and you touch on it very early in the article. There is this optical illusion that because, you know, if you take the example of one of the you know some of the teams who have a world tour equivalent team, the Lotto Sudals and the Sunwebs um, and the CCCs of the world, you look at them, and to all intents and purposes, you're looking at the men's peloton, um, same sort of kit, same sort of spec of bike. A peloton is a peloton. A bike race is a bike race. It looks the same, but if you scratch beneath the surface, it really, 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 really isn't. And that's the point you're trying to make, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's I think it's it's difficult especially now when there is these great steps forward and they really are of having equivalent men's teams and having more equipment and more infrastructure and a more professional outlook. I think that's really that's a massive positive of the situation, but the negative is it's easy for then other issues to get lost along the way because yeah, they get lost in the kind of fog of the of this mask of oh look, we've got, now we've got this nice bus and now we've got all this nice kit and look now look how professional we race. And so just even once I was on a team that raced more professionally and was a more professional setup everyone's kind of like oh she's made it she's a professional she's earning good money even if they'd known that before I wasn't and I think 
kind of my philosophy with it was like as long as it's a, a do no harm outlook on it as long as I'm not as long as I'm going into it with the right intentions of writing about it I think for me it's like it can only like you say it can only do good if you if you if you shine some light on something and and I want them all to be I've, I've written a few of them and and I refused to write any that I thought didn't have some positive to be taken from and didn't have a solution because I'm not here to just, you know, I loved being, I loved the sport. And actually, I think my only like almost anger and sadness coming out of it was sides of it that I think diminished from how much I loved it and diminished from something that could have been this like beautiful experience. And I don't want others to go through the same thing or, or even, you know, if it has to continue for a while longer because of lack of money, I want writers to know what they're going into and know what it's like and, and be, have their eyes open to it because actually that would have been very difficult, different psychologically for me if I'd have known what it was going to be like and I felt informed and I felt in a position to to either like you know speak out for myself and speak up or just to know what it was and then you know maybe I'd have had the same length of career but I would have had a different experience within it. I, mean, I think that's absolutely right. But I mean, tell me, Molly, because you know, I'm sure you're infinitely better informed on this than me. I don't know how much of a student of the sport you are. But was there ever a time, you know, when Beryl Burton was the best rider in the world by a country mile or Jenny Longo was tearing everyone's heads off? Was there ever a time where there was money in salaries in women's racing? I don't know about historically. I think it's better now than it's ever been. So I would doubt that they were on, on good money. I think now there is money. Now on the big teams... There is money, but only at the very top. Everything at the moment is kind of tip of the iceberg work. Everything that's being done is really great, but at the moment it's only kind of making the rich richer. This is like the prize money argument when people are going about on about prize money being put up, increased, and we're all like, yeah, that's that's really great, and it is a massive step forward. But it's just the rich getting richer. In you know, relatively speaking, the women's cycling isn't rich at all. But like, you know, if the winners get more money, it's like, well, that's great. But what about the bottom ninety percent of the of the peloton who are still earning nothing and earning no prize money, and it, that doesn't really help them. I think. Now we're kind of at this point of, and now there's a minimum wage coming in. It's quite low, but it's still at a start, and that's great. What is it actually, Molly? What's it going to be fixed at? I think at the moment it's fifteen thousand euros. I think um, I'm not that. I was at the sport when that came in, but it's it's relatively low, but it's still it's a massive step forward. Um, and I think what needs to happen now is there be a redistribution of money and the power structure and. Firstly, we need the the ability to bring in more money. You know, we need there to be exposure, and we need there to be coverage of women's racing because we work in advertising. And we can't advertise, we can't earn any money. But um, then, once there is money, there's a danger that it's just going to end up staying at the very top and the very pinnacle, and everyone else just gets forgotten along the way. Yeah. Which I was thinking about this just riding in to meet you. Actually, I was thinking about why is it? Why is it that Ineos Stroke Sky have never? you know, taken the step and, and, and done what other World Tour teams, men's teams have done and, and kind of created a parallel women's team. And I think there are, I, I don't know what you, you think, I think there are a number of reasons. One is, I don't think Dave Brailsford is remotely interested uh, and without his drive, he's moulded that in his own image, hasn't he? Without his personal drive, it's never going to get started. So I think that's one thing. But there is another thing, and you've just touched on it there, that if they, if they did... They would only want to do as well as the men's team does in a very targeted way, you know, the, and, and that could distort things horribly. With their infinite wealth, they could simply snap up, snap up absolutely everyone at the drop of a hat, finding spare change down the back of the couch, and that might not be the best thing for the women's peloton either. Yeah, I think, yeah, you've kind of hit the nail on the head. I think there's motive, firstly. I think everyone always wants all the men's teams to have a parallel and if there's a rich team for them to redistribute it or distribute it to the women. But yeah, if you don't want to do it, then it's not going to happen. It's not going to be done in the right way anyway. It's going to be kind of a token gesture. Yeah, or on the other hand, you bring in so much money at the, like, the top end of the sport, like the number one position. You buy all the most expensive riders and you just kind of obliterate any chance of there being progression downwards. And I think... 
that's kind of hopefully going to happen soon as, as there is a world tour structure starts to come in so that the lower teams go into you know point two races and the, and the lower level races and actually they don't rock up and there's the top 10 teams are all there at every single race of the whole year so there's no way of getting there because you're like well every race I do I'm up against the best in the world there's never any kind of development races there's never any like slightly lesser races to get your profile out there um, I think the power structure as it is it's in the hands of the powerful there's there's no way for you know a less a less powerful team or less powerful rider to kind of take a bit of a parallel path or take a slightly like lesser path in terms of go to smaller races go get, go on a, you know, a second echelon of, of of teams and try and then you know progress through that if you're up against the top 10 all the time then that's, and that's really interesting when you think of the example of Lorena Vibers and her contracts negotiation she's still with Parker Tell Falkenberg isn't she and I, I I don't know whether the team's actually called that in 2020 it's probably changed but um and she's found it quite difficult to get out of that contract, but she clearly sees limited opportunity to develop what could be a stellar career for her. You know, as you say, with that kind of organic progression, she feels like she needs to be dumped straight into the top tier. Um, so that's a delicate kind of... Um, one change that I've noticed over the last couple of years is there is more stuff that's, I hesitate to say televised, but it's getting streamed. Um, th- there are more cameras on more races carrying, in theory, more live pictures. Um, do you notice that trend? Yeah, definitely. From when I first started racing, there was nothing. I mean, it, it wasn't even really on Twitter. There was no, like, you do a race unless people had actively followed that race and, like, really worked hard <laughs> to follow it. Then it was, then no one, no one saw it. And actually, it wasn't even really being t- talked about at the time. There's so many other problems and it was such, it wasn't so professional. And there was only a couple of teams who actually had a team structure and an infrastructure around them. Um, and now I think it's always frustratingly slow. Progress is never as quick as people want it. People see the solution or what they think is the solution and they want it to be instant. Um, but I think these things, I mean, the problems are ingrained for decades now. So it's going to take more than one season for those to all be undone and for new you know, systems to be in place. But I think it's going in the right direction. And I think as long as that's the case, all we can all do is keep pushing for it to continue going in the right direction and, and kind of take what progress we can and fight for more. And, and hopefully then that then comes to fruition someday. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is television, though. It is live pictures, isn't it? That will drive this ultimately. It's trying to, without those, it's trying to light a, light a fire in a vacuum, isn't it? You've got the kindling, you've got your matches out there. But if there's not a fresh supply of oxygen, ain't going to catch, catch yeah. on. And, and that seems to me um, fundamentally important. Now, getting away from the kind of bitter problems of, of, of actually getting this support sustainable that I and from a personal point of view I'm, I, I commentate seldom on women's racing hopefully I'm about to go and do the women's Stradibianchi race which is one of a handful of races I commentate on every year but almost every single time Molly I commentate on it I find it endlessly fascinating because because of the grammar of the way that women's race tend to unfold it's very different from the men's it's actually much more dynamic the tactics are much more interesting very often so I, I'm a big fan of it um, and uh, so I sat down and watched the first televised race of the year which I think was um, Newsblad I don't think anything had been televised before that with the possible exception of the down under races but frankly they're in the middle of the night aren't they um, and I don't know if you managed to see that this year but uh, you did Annemiek van Vluten if she carries on like that, is going to win a lot, isn't she, this year? Yeah, she's one of those riders that it's... She's formidable and also difficult, I think, for other ride, other teams um, to manage the, the style of riding that she that she does. It's not... 
when there's a dominant sprinter, that's also quite hard to fight against. But you can there's tactics you can put in place to try and conquer that and try and you know you pick out what their weakness is. Are they bad long distance, short distance? You try and work with that. But I think the dominance she showed there in doing it solo on what was a hard race and already attritional and already a broken up into lots of groups. I think actually there's the potential that she's going to be really dominant this year because if she's a whole step above everyone else I think it's really hard for teams to find a way to conquer that especially if there's obstacles in way of climbs or if it's a flat race that's easier to control it but if there's a climb and she's just the best on the climb it's very hard to manage that and 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 fight against it and her team is also really strong so she's not kind of the one in 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 and have no backup she has one of the strongest teams in the bunch and she's the strongest rider so that's kind of a hard thing to fight against it almost feels as if um trying to make the race hard for her is like the last thing you should do in a way because by doing that as you say you break the race up into such small constituent parts that ultimately when that key climb comes be it 30 50 80 kilometers from the finish line she's attacking from a group of seven or eight or or 12 riders and that gives her the platform to do something that she's eminently capable of and and so it kind of blows up in your face sometimes that tactic doesn't it by making the race hard yeah and I think I think what teams need to kind of do is is have is quite often what you do take one team leader and then you have their backup team so let's say it was like an Ardennes classic you would take the person you thought was most likely to win and then you maybe take a backup plan a plan b and then everyone else would be domestiques I think kind of maybe what what teams are going to have to do is put more of their stars in one race to basically play her off against more than one rider. I think if it's a one-on-one, it's going to be hard to beat her. So what you need to do is have multiple riders who are of a similar style of rider, who have a similar, you know, chance of winning that race and actually just try and overwork her because, yeah, I think one-on-one is going to be hard to see, you know, a situation where she doesn't come out the winner on on that. Who are the young riders um, who you're kind of looking forward to seeing develop over the next couple of years, Molly? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I think we've kind of had like a, uh, a selection of riders that have been dominant for a while now who've all been of a kind of relatively similar decade of rider or intake of riders. Mariana, Voss, yeah. Ashley Moorman, yeah. uh, Lizzie herself, obviously. Yeah, I think the same riders that I, I kind of came into the sport idolising and watching has, are still <laughs> being dominant. Um, I think there's some, some interesting... Uh, I think someone like Lizzie Banks, I think that's going to be interesting to watch. I think she stayed relatively under the radar for a rider that's actually had a good year last year, so it wouldn't be a shock if something happened this year, but I think... She won a stage of the Giro, didn't she? From a, Albeit from a breakaway, but um, that's signs that she ain't going to be given that kind of freedom again, put it that way. Yeah, I think she's going to... She, yeah, she's going to find it more difficult to just slip away and, and go under the radar, but also some riders just don't end up talk, being talked about as much as others, so you can kind of remain relatively anonymous in that sense. Um, I think it's going to be interesting on some of the teams, some of the big teams, to see who who emerges. I think something like a Trek Segafredo is going to be interesting to watch. I think Sabrina Stoltens just won a race actually um, on CCC. She's not a new rider, but she's been out for a long time with concussions and injuries, and she was a superstar. And then you know for years now has struggled to even get to the start of races. So to see her winning a stage, that's interesting to see. And I think, especially in like the climbing and the Ardennes, I think that could be an interesting interesting rider. Um, but yeah, always on the big teams, I'm always interested to see who emerges. I think it's often you often expect just the same few to always be the leaders, and then quite often some like slip away a little bit year on year. 
I think Lizzie Danan is going to be, again, Olympic year. I know she had a good year last year, but it took her a while to get going. And she was very much in the training phases early on, I think. Had a, had a baby as well. I mean, you know, small detail. but Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, so, so the start of the season was, tra- was you know, she, she said, I'm not going to win. And, and that was, I mean, everyone was surprised she even you know, managed to win anything in that year because that was incredible. But I think in the Olympic cycle and a whole other year behind her, I think that's going to be kind of an exciting thing to watch. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, yeah, so Olympic year is always quite special. It's quite an important race for the, for the women. Do you think it has more status, the Olympic women's road race, in the women's calendar, albeit every four years, than it does with the men's? Oh yeah, 100%. I think in the men's, it's, I mean, they have something like the Tour de France, is the biggest sporting event in the world every year. So that's got, that's, you know, a big draw. I mean, every race they do is, is of a bigger profile than the women's equivalent. Whereas the Olympics, you know, is a world stage and it goes beyond cycling. It's across all sports. Um, and I think it's one of those races where, as the women, you know, that's going to be televised. That's going to be seen by people. That's going to be supported. That's that's kind of a big... We don't have something that's, that's year on year as big as that will ever be. So, I mean, Anna van der Breggen won it and that's still, you know, a major thing that's still talked about all the time. That's still something that she carries and, and it's kind of... She has an incredible career aside from that. But still, that's kind of... That is the feather in the crown of her career. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, it's good, it's good stuff, isn't it? I'm looking forward to it. Which, for your money, in a non-Olympic year, which is, which is still the most important bike race of the year? Is it the Giro Rosa? Is it the... Is it the women's tour? Is that close? Or is it the one-day races that really stand out for you? I think it depends in what way we're talking about is the most significant. I think in terms of history and the image of the sport, I think the Giro, it's it's hard to argue against that being like the pinnacle race. I think it's still got so much history and so much status. And I think the fact that it's our longest stage race, the fact that it's so hard, the fact that it's our grand tour, um, that in itself is massive. But... I think the lack of coverage of that race and the, the, the way that race isn't keeping up with others. It's a little bit better last year, wasn't it? In terms of coverage, it got, a, it got some edited highlights that went up online each day, which seemed to be more than I was used to seeing anyway. Yeah, I think it's definitely improving, but I'm also not sure how much they want that to be. I, they don't seem to have that much interest. And so that back to the motive of people doing things, if they want it just to be an Italian thing and they want it just to be yeah. steeped in the history and they're not that interested in it progressing i mean you have to work really hard in women's sport to get anything to happen so unless it's really what you want for that i think it's 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 difficult to see whether that's actually going to happen i mean i only time will tell i I hope that that continues to be the biggest race i think it's prestigious it's it's amazing it's an incredible sporting event but now i would argue either something like a classics or the classics are getting better televised they're getting better they're They've got history, something like a Flanders, something like a Flesh Wallon. Those are massive events. But in terms of the coverage in real time, something like the Women's Tour, actually, when we used to go to those races, that was a really important race because that was going to be seen. That was going to be publicised. That was going to be on TV, whether it's highlights or the stage. It was going to be something where people saw you. And, and that was something where yeah, in team meetings you were told this is a big deal. You know, this needs to be a show because this is going to be our chance to, you know, showcase women cycling. And. Um, I'd like to see that have the opportunity to become our Grand Tour. Yeah. I've always been banging on for ages that that race feels ready for me for a foreign Grand Depart. I think that would be absolutely brilliant if they started it over, in, obviously, in the Netherlands. I mean, that's the obvious place to start it and bring it over the channel and I think give it a bit of an international feel and then really grow it into a Grand Tour. I think it would be something else. Um, excellent. Molly, you've, you no regrets about um, quitting and kind of like you're not going to get back in the saddle anytime soon you did write about getting into endurance sport in some shape or another yeah I'm just doing an ultra endurance racing now so I'm I'm back on the bike I I did toy with the idea of coming back last year to road racing but 
I had a bad crash and I broke my wrist and kind of I didn't want to come back after that and that was kind of the closure I needed was you know what I don't want to I'm, I'm happy to step away now from this side of the sport and close that chapter and now I do gravel racing ultra endurance racing and and I do I have any regrets I mean it's hard to say you never have any I think there are things about my career that I regret and there are decisions that I made and there were times that I think I also played a part in things you know going wrong and um but at the end of the day it's done and I and I was then happy to to close the book on that and go okay what's next and look for something else I loved within the sport of cycling because I did turn my back on it for about a couple of years really but I was only doing that on principle because that felt like you know I needed some time away from it but at the end of the day it's what I love and I think I didn't want you know a bad end to my career mean that I turn my back on something that actually brings me happiness so yeah I'm just focusing on other things and other projects and yeah really excited about it so that's Molly Weaver and David I didn't realize that you um you have a kind of a I don't think you know Molly particularly well but you have this strange connection and she well explain what happened explain what happened uh, well, she was based in Girona, um, training as well, dozens and dozens of professional cyclists are, and uh, she had a big crash so a few years ago now, and because it's a pretty small place, but and and I know a lot of people, a lot of people know me, so I'm kind of, a, although I'm outside of it, I'm part of the, the local network, and so when uh, one of my friends who's a fireman was called to the crash where she had a big crash and then his wife got in touch with me and so I ended up finding out kind of speaking to her parents and sending messages and trying to rally all the local resources and put everything in touch to to help her and it was a really nice kind of drona scene but I it was it, it was so I, I had quite a bit of liaison with her parents about it because I know how that would feel if you somebody you loved in a crash so it was quite good well you you called them up didn't you and, yeah and made that phone call that must mm. have been quite tricky in the first place and i don't think they well according to molly's account um they didn't they thought that someone was playing a joke on them <laughs> hello it's yeah. david miller get out of <laughs> um yeah no, well she speaks very highly of you i, mean, I don't think kind. you've spent a great deal of time with her other than that brief no. kind of mm. moment that your your two worlds collided but um yeah. but i mean go back to the the subject of what she addresses it's a uh, it's just one of those insoluble conundrums isn't it like, oh. you know, how, how you advance this very slow moving yeah, desire to, to to make the circle complete with women's racing. It's a real struggle, and I think it's going to be for a long time. And uh, part of the problem is, is it's not as if the grass is greener in the men's. It's much gr- greener than the women's cycling, but it's still a mess. Men's cycling, it's just a different mess. And so, at the moment, the the whole sport is uh, from the outside. It can look okay, but the deeper you get into it, it's it's pretty precarious. Which is kind of the point she made, actually. That that, that you know, don't be fooled by the kit they're riding the kit they're given the mm. team buses and the mirrored shades and the way it mm. looks on telly scratch beneath the surface and um you don't you don't have to even in the men's peloton you know you're talking about continental teams mm. they're in much the same position as the women's peloton albeit in the third tier of of you know a lot of those riders are riding for niche yeah um or expenses only um right well tomorrow on Paris nice is the second longest stage david miller Ooh. Stage three goes from um, uh, Chalet sur Loin, which is uh, where today's fa- uh, stage finish stage finished, over two hundred and twelve point five, mostly southerly uh, kilometers, to La Châtre, which is pretty close to Châteauroux, where which British bike racer won their first? Mark Cavendish. Correct. 
and that's all I've got to say to, about it, other than it's a little bit ominous because looking at the long range, admittedly, wind forecasts, the wind is strong tomorrow, but in their faces. Yeah, that's going to be dull. Might be a bit of a slog. But we can't complain. We've had two absolute belters, and we will um, listen. We'll oh, we came up with a new tagline for our podcast. Which one was it? Holding world cycling together. Oh, uh, that it? was it. Yeah, we we are. Yeah, it doesn't sound as good now. We're saying it again. Holding. It felt like we're holding world cycling together. We need to work on that. We're, we'll work on that. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 